As you probably remember, in April, Peterson and Zizek had a debate on Marxism. Notably, Peterson decided to base his opening statement on a reading of the Communist Manifesto. Even if one ignores the problems with basing your understanding of Marxism on a single short political pamphlet, Peterson infamously misunderstood or misrepresented Marx in almost every minute of his statement. Obviously, this debate happened a while ago and many responses have been made to it, so the point of this video is not merely to recap Peterson's mistakes. Instead, we'd like to make an educational video on Marxism, which uses some of Peterson's remarks and critiques as a starting point for discussion. The hope is that in watching this video, a person will not only learn why Peterson is wrong, but also learn what Marx actually thought. To achieve this goal, I'm joined by Anarchopack and Red Plateaus, both of which are great YouTube channels containing helpful content on Marxism. Links in the description. During his speech, Jordan Peterson makes two main arguments against what he calls Proposition Number 1 of the Communist Manifesto. Here's Proposition Number 1. History is to be viewed primarily as an economic class struggle. Peterson appears to have derived this proposition from the opening sentence of the Communist Manifesto's first chapter. The history of all hitherto existing society is the history of class struggles. Peterson's first argument against this view is that Marx focuses on class struggle but ignores the human struggle for survival within the natural world. He says, But the other thing that Marx didn't seem to take into account is that there, there, there are far more reasons that human beings struggle than their economic class struggle, even if you build the hierarchical idea into that, which is a more comprehensive way of thinking about it, human beings struggle with themselves, with the malevolence that's inside themselves, with the evil that they're capable of doing, with the spiritual and psychological warfare that goes on within them. And we're also actually always at odds with nature. And this never seems to show up in Marx, and it doesn't show up in Marxists, Marxism in general. It's as if nature doesn't exist. The primary conflict, as far as I'm concerned, or a primary conflict that human beings engage in, is the struggle for life in a cruel and harsh natural world. And it's as if, it's as if that doesn't exist in the Marxist domain. If human beings have a problem, it's because there's a class struggle that's essentially economic. It's like, no, human beings have problems because we come into the life starving and lonesome. And we have to solve that problem continually, and we make our social arrangements, at least in part, to ameliorate that. There are several problems with what Peterson says here. Firstly, Peterson is wrong to claim that it's as if nature doesn't exist in Marx. This is because Marx consistently argues within both his early and later writings that in order to survive, humans must engage in labour which uses or transforms the natural world. In the Economic and Philosophic Manuscripts of 1844, Marx claims that the worker can create nothing without nature, without the sensuous external world, because nature provides labour with the means of life, in the sense that labour cannot live without objects on which to exercise itself, so also it provides the means of life in the narrower sense, namely the means of physical subsistence of the worker. 
Within his economic notebooks of 1857-8, which were published under the title The Grundrisse, Marx refers to the obvious trite notion that, in production, the members of society appropriate, create, shape, the products of nature in accord with human needs. A decade later, in Capital Volume 1, Marx writes that, Labour is a process between man and nature, a process by which man, through his own actions, mediates, regulates, and controls the metabolism between himself and nature. He confronts the materials of nature as a force of nature. He sets in motion the natural forces which belong to his own body, his arms, legs, head, and hands, in order to appropriate the materials of nature in a form adapted to his own needs. For Marx, the labour process, so understood, is the universal condition for the metabolic interaction between man and nature, the everlasting nature-imposed condition of human existence, and it is therefore independent of every form of that existence, or rather, it is common to all forms of society in which human beings live. Marx reiterates this point in Capital Volume 3, when he writes that human beings must wrestle with nature to satisfy his needs, to maintain and reproduce his life, and he must do so in all forms of society and under all possible modes of production. The importance Marx placed on the fact that humans must struggle for survival within the natural world through engaging in acts of production can be seen not only in the fact that Marx consistently advocates this position across both his early and later writings. It can also be demonstrated by the fact that within the German ideology, which is an edited compilation of manuscripts that were written by Marx and Engels between 1845 and 6, he critiques previous historians for over-focusing on the history of states, religions, or ideas, and in so doing, excluding the relation of man to nature and the real production of life from history. Secondly, Marx talks about nature in Chapter 1 of the Communist Manifesto. This is both the specific text Peterson claimed to have read in preparation for the debate, and the specific chapter from which Peterson derives the proposition that he is responding to in this section of his speech. A few pages after saying that, the history of all hitherto existing society is the history of class struggles, Marx describes how capitalism has created technology and human capacities which enable human beings to have a historically unprecedented ability to transform the natural world. He writes, The bourgeoisie, during its rule of scarce 100 years, has created more massive and more colossal productive forces than have all preceding generations together. Subjection of nature's forces to man, machinery, application of chemistry to industry and agriculture, steam navigation, railways, electric telegraphs, clearing of whole continents for cultivation, canalization of rivers, whole populations conjured out of the ground, 
What earlier century had even a presentiment that such productive forces slumbered in the lap of social labour? The fact that Peterson claims that it's as if nature doesn't exist in Marx, therefore demonstrates not only the fact that Peterson has failed to read the economic and philosophic manuscripts, the German ideology, the Grundrisse, Capital Volume 1, and Capital Volume 3, it also shows that he failed to pay attention when reading the Communist Manifesto. Thirdly, Peterson is wrong to claim that the relationship between humans and the natural world doesn't show up in Marxism in general. Ecology has in fact been one of the main topics discussed in the recent academic literature on Marx. Peterson has clearly never heard of, let alone read, John Bellamy Foster's 2010 book, Marx's Ecology, Materialism and Nature. Foster and Paul Burkett's 2017 book, Marx and the Earth, An Anti-Critique, and Kohi Saito's 2017 book, Karl Marx Eco-Socialism, Capital, Nature, and the Unfinished Critique of Political Economy. Peterson has in addition to this, failed to familiarise himself with ecological Marxist texts more broadly, such as Jason Moore's 2015 book, Capitalism and the Web of Life, Ecology and the Accumulation of Capital. Given the above, in saying that Marx specifically, and Marxism in general, ignore nature and the fact that humans must struggle to survive within the harsh natural world, Peterson was only demonstrating how little he knows about Marx. Peterson's second argument is that human beings are not motivated purely by economics, and that Marx ignores non-economic motivations. He says, because There are many other motivations that drive human beings than economics, and those have to be taken into account, especially that drive people other than economic competition, like economic cooperation, for example. And so that's a problem. The other problem is that it's There are once again several problems with Peterson's argument. Firstly, Peterson is claiming to be refuting Marx's notion that history is to be viewed primarily as an economic class struggle. Yet in this section of his speech, he's instead making an argument against the distinct idea that people are motivated solely or primarily by economic motivations. This ignores the fact that it doesn't follow from the proposition that the main driving force of history is economic class struggle, that the human beings who engage in class struggle do so because they are purely, or largely, motivated to do so by economic motivations. People could be psychologically motivated to participate in class struggle for non-economic reasons. For example, a person could be driven to overthrow capitalism because they empathise with the suffering of others, or could decide to become a capitalist because they want to impress their conservative father who has read a dangerous amount of Ludwig von Mises. Secondly, although Peterson is correct to say that Marx talks about economic competition as a feature of capitalism, such as in the Communist Manifesto, 
Peterson is wrong to claim that Marx ignores economic cooperation. In Chapter 13 of Capital Volume 1, which is called Cooperation, Marx writes that, when numerous workers work together side by side in accordance with a plan, whether in the same process or in different but connected processes, this form of labour is called cooperation. For Marx, such cooperation results in an increase in the productive power of the individual and the creation of a new productive power that is intrinsically a collective one. Marx returns to this idea in Capital Volume 2 when he claims that under capitalism, the working period can be shortened in some branches simply by an extension of cooperation, such as the completion of a railway being hastened by setting afoot great armies of workers and tackling the job from many different points in space. Thirdly, Marx did not hold that people are motivated solely or primarily by economic motivations. Marx instead held that people deploy their powers, by which he meant capacities, to satisfy their needs. Although Marx thought that some very important needs within his society were economic, such as a worker's need for a job in order to earn money, or a capitalist's need to outcompete other businesses, he did not specify that human needs as a whole are only or largely economic, and in fact gives several examples of non-economic needs. Peterson would know this if he'd been intellectually responsible and read the recent academic literature on Marx before publicly speaking on the matter to an incredibly large audience. According to David Leopold in his 2007 book, The Young Karl Marx, German Philosophy, Modern Politics and Human Flourishing, Marx refers to a variety of basic and complex human needs. Basic human needs are such things as, to quote Leopold, a human need for sustenance, he talks about eating, drinking and more generally nourishment, for warmth and shelter, he lists heating and clothing as well as dwelling, for certain climactic conditions, he mentions both light and air, for physical exercise, the need to move about and the need for physical exercise, for basic hygiene, the simplest animal cleanliness, and for reproduction and heterosexual sexual activity. He writes of procreation and describes sexual relationships between women and men as characteristic of the species. Complex needs in comparison are things like, to quote Leopold again, the human need for recreation, to go drinking, to go dancing, to fence, to sing, for culture, to go to the theatre, for education and intellectual exercise, to think, to theorise, to buy books, to engage in learning, for artistic expression, to paint, for emotional fulfilment, to love, and for aesthetic pleasure. Marx identifies a musical ear, an eye for the beauty of form, as among our essential human capacities and powers. Some of the basic needs, such as needing food, could be construed as economic motivations in a broad sense. 
Others, such as needing to exercise or have sex, cannot. None of the complex needs Marx mentions can be construed as strictly speaking economic needs. Even those needs whose satisfaction within our society rests on the exchange of money, such as buying alcohol to drink or buying books from a shop, are entangled with other non-economic needs, such as the desire to get drunk in order to have fun, or the desire to read a book in order to learn about the history of socks. Fourthly, although Marx did subscribe to the view that the economy plays a key role in shaping society, he did not conceptualise this primacy in terms of the idea that people are primarily motivated by economic needs. In his 1859 preface to a contribution to the critique of political economy, Marx wrote a highly condensed and simplified summary of his theory of history. According to Marx, in the social production of their life, men enter into definite relations that are indispensable and independent of their will. Relations of production which correspond to a definite stage of development of their material productive forces. The sum total of these relations of production constitutes the economic structure of society, the real foundation on which rises a legal and political superstructure and to which correspond definite forms of social consciousness. The mode of production of material life conditions the social, political and intellectual life process in general. It is not the consciousness of men that determine their being, but on the contrary, their social being that determines their consciousness. In claiming that the economic structure of society is the real foundation upon which rises a legal and political superstructure, and to which correspond definite forms of social consciousness, Marx was not, as is often falsely asserted, committing himself to the view that the economy is always the main, determining element of all other aspects of society throughout all of human history. This is clearly demonstrated by the fact that within Capital Volume 1, Marx writes in a footnote that the Middle Ages could not live on Catholicism, nor could the ancient world on politics. On the contrary, it is the manner in which they gained their livelihood, which explains why in one case politics, in the other case Catholicism, played the chief part. In this passage, Marx explicitly states that politics played the chief part in the ancient world, and that Catholicism played the chief part in the Middle Ages. Marx was therefore not a strong economic determinist who ignored that other aspects of society are important or can play a more important role than the economy at certain historic moments. Marx was instead committed to the weaker view that the economy provides the real foundation of other elements of society. What does this mean? On my reading, Marx holds that the economy provides the real foundation of other elements of society in three main ways, which I shall discuss in turn. A. The economy produces the necessities of life, and so guarantees the survival of humans. 
The consequence of this fact is that although humans can survive without social structures, like religion or the state, they cannot survive without an economy, because in the absence of production, humans would die. As Marx writes in the German ideology, the first premise of all human existence, and therefore of all history, is that men must be in a position to live in order to be able to make history, but life involves, before everything else, eating and drinking, a habitation, clothing, and many other things. The first historical act is thus the production of the means to satisfy these needs, the production of material life itself. There is therefore a sense in which other social structures rest on the economy, because the economy is a necessary condition for human existence over time, in a way that other social structures are not. b. The production of material life itself is a concrete form of activity which necessarily shapes those who engage in it in significant ways. Marx writes that the mode of production must not be considered simply as being the production of the physical existence of the individuals, rather it is a definite form of activity of these individuals, a definite form of expressing their life, a definite mode of life on their part, as individuals express their life, so they are. What they are, therefore coincides with their production, both with what they produce, and with how they produce. c. The economy establishes the real possibilities for other forms of human action, and therefore sets the parameters in which other social structures exist. One of the main reasons why Marx thinks that the economy plays this role is because what social structures humans can potentially establish are inherently limited by what technology and skills to use this technology humans possess. The manner in which a modern state is organised, for example, is only made possible due to computers, the internet, email, etc., and the ability to use this technology, such as knowing how to use Microsoft Office. In the absence of these necessary productive forces, the modern state would have to be organised in a very different manner, or could not even exist in the first place. Hunter-gatherers living in the Paleolithic, for example, would not be able to create a modern state and its accompanying bureaucracy, even if they somehow wanted to, due to lacking key productive forces, such as writing or the mass production of pens and paper. It is in turn the case that the development of new productive forces transforms how society is organised due to the new real possibilities for human action they enable. The invention of instant messaging, for example, transformed how humans were able to socially relate to one another, and thereby transformed how society was structured. The technology and its application provided human beings with the real possibility to enter into sexual relationships through Tinder or Grinder, rather than previous methods which were limited by earlier forms of technology, such as arranged marriages established through letters, or dates organised via adverts in lonely heart sections of newspapers. As Marx writes in The Poverty of Philosophy, social relations are closely bound up with productive forces, 
In acquiring new productive forces, men change their mode of production, and in changing their mode of production, in changing the way of earning their living, they change all their social relations. The hand mill gives you society with the feudal lord, the steam mill society with the industrial capitalist. Given the above, Jordan Peterson's two main arguments against the idea that history is to be viewed primarily as an economic class struggle are wrong and rest on an entirely inaccurate understanding of Marx. Peterson makes these false claims about what Marx thought with total confidence, despite the fact that he himself knew that his understanding of Marx is based on reading the Communist Manifesto rather than an extended study of Marx's other major and much longer works, such as Volumes 1-3 to of Capital, The Economic and Philosophical Manuscripts, or The Grundrisse. Jordan Peterson's fans often complain that critics of Peterson have not read his most scholarly book, Maps of Meaning, and so do not understand his worldview but for some reason they have not to my knowledge applied this same standard to Peterson himself, who has publicly critiqued Marx to a huge audience without actually bothering to find out what Marx thought. In Twelve Rules for Life, Peterson argues that, in societies that are well-functioning, competence, not power, is a prime determiner of status. If we apply this yardstick to Peterson, we are forced to conclude that in a well-functioning society, he would exist at the bottom of the knowing things about Marx competence hierarchy. The fact that so many people in our society wrongly view Peterson as a source of knowledge on Marx, who has raised a number of powerful objections to Marx's worldview, only demonstrates the extent to which society has failed to conform to Peterson's own ideals. Okay, now the other, another problem that comes up right away is that Marx also assumes that you can think about history as a binary class struggle with clear divisions between, say, the proletariat and the bourgeoisie. And that's actually a problem because it's not so easy to make a firm division between who's exploiter and who's um, exploitee, let's say, um, because it's not... It's not true. It's not even true of the one Marx text that Peterson claims to have read, namely the Communist Manifesto. There, Marx explicitly says that previous forms of society had more than two classes. In other words, he makes clear that he does not think of all of history as a binary class struggle. He writes that in earlier epochs of society, we find almost everywhere a comprehensive division into different orders. In ancient Rome, we have patricians, knights, plebeian slaves. In the Middle Ages, feudal lords, vassals, guildmasters, journeymen, serfs. And again, in almost all of these, further classes, further fine gradations. Note that Marx himself points out not only that there are many other classes in these societies, but also that there are many fine gradations within each group. This is on page 2 of the manifesto. Now, Marx never gives us a precise definition of class. These ideas were well established when he wrote, and political economists from Adam Smith to Ricardo to John Stuart Mill 
all talked about divisions in society into different orders, ranks and classes with no real worries. We should also note that they tended to use these words interchangeably with each other. Briefly put, for Marx, class is a social relation based on your relationship to the means of production. Of particular importance are relations of ownership, such as whether you own the means of production like land and factories or not, and relations of control, whether you control the means of production or not. For Marx, what stands out about working class people under capitalism is that they neither own nor control the means of production, while the capitalist class does and uses this power to dominate, oppress and exploit workers. However, Marx never says that there are only two classes in capitalism. As Zizek pointed out in the debate, in the 18th Brumaire, Marx talks about the lumpenproletariat, the intelligentsia, and has a bunch of complex subdivisions within the various classes he discusses. In the Communist Manifesto, Marx doesn't say that there are only two classes, only that our society is tending to split into two great hostile encampments, into two great classes directly and mutually opposed. This is talk of a tendency he sees unfolding, but it's not something that has been fully completed. Even in the manifesto, Marx shortly afterwards points out some of the other classes in capitalism. He writes that, of all the classes which today oppose the bourgeoisie, the only truly revolutionary class is the proletariat. Two sentences down, he gives us some examples. The middle classes, the small manufacturer, the shopkeeper, the artisan, the peasant. And on the very next page, he talks about the lumpen proletariat, that subsection of the working class that such people will be thrown into if the development Marx talks about continues. Given that all of this happens in the first 11 pages of the manifesto, you have to ask yourself if Peterson even bothered to read the one pamphlet he claims to. Finally, if Peterson had read more than just one single pamphlet, he would have found that, for example in Volume 1 of Capital, Marx points out the fine subdivisions within, say, the working class. For example, he writes about how the technical subordination of the worker to the uniform motion of the instruments of labor and the peculiar composition of the working group gives rise to a barrack-like discipline, which is elaborated into a complete system in the factory and brings the previously mentioned labor of the superintendents to its fullest development, thereby dividing workers into manual workers and overseers, into the private soldiers and the NGOs of an industrial army. It's hard to get more explicit about the complicated subdivisions of oppressive relations within the working class than this. If Peterson had read more of Marx, he would also have seen that for Marx class is about much more than just oppression, it's also about things like domination and exploitation. And he would have seen that Marx thinks there are many other social divisions apart from class. Peterson goes on to try to talk about Marx's critique of capitalism, but it's never quite clear what he thinks that his critique consists in. He says something about Marx criticizing profits, but that's not true. It's just not something that happens anywhere in the manifesto or elsewhere. It looks to us like Peterson thinks that Marx criticizes capitalism for being unjust, essentially because it's incompatible with equality of outcome. He says this to Zizek. I also heard an argument for egalitarianism, and, but I heard it defined as equality of opportunity, not as equality of outcome, which I see as a clearly defined Marxist aim. 
Now, the problem when somebody just lies about something with no evidence to support it and no argument behind it is that you can't show that the evidence doesn't support the conclusion or that the argument doesn't work because none of these are provided. All we can say is that Marx never advocates equality as a political value and he certainly never advocates equality of outcome either in the manifesto or anywhere else. If you're in doubt, find a version and use the search function to see for yourself. What we can show is that Marx explicitly argues against equality of outcome and all other arguments for socialism based on ideas about just distribution. He argues against the Lasallian idea of all workers equally being paid according to the value of their labor, pointing out that whenever you make people equal in one respect, you make them unequal in others. This equal right is an unequal right for unequal labor. However, unequal individuals, and they would not be different individuals if they were not unequal, are measurable only by an equal standard, insofar as they are brought under an equal point of view, are taken from one definite side only. For instance, in the present case, are regarded only as workers and nothing more is seen in them, everything else being ignored. Further, one worker is married, another is not. One has more children than another, and so on and so forth. Thus, with an equal performance of labor, and hence an equal in the social consumption fund, one will in fact receive more than another, one will be richer than another, and so on. To avoid all these deficits, right, instead of being equal, would have to be unequal. The general point that Marx is making here is that any standard of equality you set necessarily looks at things from only one side, ignoring all other aspects of someone's situation. If you make everyone equal in one respect, you necessarily make them unequal in many others. In other words, Marx never advocates equality of outcome, and the closest thing among socialists that he does talk about, everyone receiving equal pay according to their labor, he explicitly argues against. But more than this, commitments to equality of outcome are typically commitments to some ideal of fair or equal distribution. Marx is even more explicit that it's a mistake to base anything on such ideals. In the critique of the Gotha program, Marx writes, What is a fair distribution? Do not the bourgeois assert that the present-day distribution is fair? And is it not, in fact, the only fair distribution on the basis of the present-day mode of production? Are economic relations regulated by legal conceptions? Or do not, on the contrary, legal relations arise out of economic ones? Have not also the socialist sectarians the most varied notions about fair distribution? Marx goes on to write that, apart from the analysis so far given, it was in general a mistake to make a fuss about so-called distribution and put the principal stress on it. This is because any distribution whatever of the means of consumption is only a consequence of the distribution of the conditions of production themselves. The latter distribution, however, is a feature of the mode of production itself. He goes on to argue that the focus on what we today call distributive justice is essentially a capitalist or bourgeois confusion that has slipped into bad socialist theory. Vulgar socialism 
and from it in turn a section of the Democrats, has taken over from the bourgeois economists the consideration and treatment of distribution as independent of the mode of production, and hence the presentation of socialism as turning principally on distribution. After the real relation has long been made clear, why retrogress again? Marx thinks that the rules of justice of any society are shaped by the society you're in. How you should, and how it makes sense to act in certain situations, is different in a modern capitalist society than in, for example, a feudal society like we see on Game of Thrones. And it doesn't really make sense to use the rules for how to act in one society to judge how you should act if you were in another. This isn't just Marx, by the way. In 1875, his friend and collaborator Friedrich Engels complained that the newly formed Socialist Workers' Party of Germany proclaimed the elimination of all social and political inequality instead of the abolition of all class distinctions. Not only did Marx not advocate equality, he also didn't advocate social justice. He never claims or argues that capitalism is unjust. We can't show you any quotes of this, of course, because claims that Marx did think these things are just made up. Marx does, however, have a critique of capitalism. While he doesn't want equality, he does want freedom, and this ties back to his understanding of class struggle under capitalism. Marx thinks that capitalism has many advantages, vastly increasing technology, productivity, in short, developing what he calls the forces of production. He eagerly points this out in the Communist Manifesto and elsewhere. One of the greatest advantages of capitalism, for Marx, is that it paves the way to human freedom by making communism possible. Capitalism, he thinks, has developed our productive capacities so much that the abundance of communism has become possible. It has fully collectivized production, gathered working class people together, and unified them under common interests. It has even improved the means of communication between workers and thus has increased their abilities to organize. This makes it possible for workers to struggle and win major improvements to their lives and society in the short term and to fight for a free future society in the long term. While capitalism has developed the forces of production so much that a fully free society is possible, its unfree social relations are preventing us from taking full advantage of this potential. Workers are dominated by bosses in the workplace, by impersonal market forces more broadly, and a host of other forms of oppression. By replacing capitalism's oppressive social relations, we can take full advantage of the emancipatory potential of modern industry and technology. Marx therefore writes of communism as the true realm of freedom, which consists in the development of human powers as an end in itself. Communism will be a society where the full and free development of every individual forms the ruling principle, an association in which the free development of each is the condition for the free development of all. In short, Marx's critique of capitalism isn't that it's unjust because it's unequal, far from it. It's that capitalism is holding us back from taking advantage of the potential for a fully free society that is now there. One of the major ideas that Peterson attacks in Marx is the dictatorship of the proletariat and its feasibility. He raises questions about how the dictatorship would work 
how those carrying out political functions would be elected, and how they would be kept from becoming corrupt. Whenever bringing up the dictatorship of the proletariat, we first need to point out how the use of the term dictatorship has changed since Marx was writing. Nowadays, the word is understood as government ruled by a dictator, and so the mention of the word evokes in people the image of some despotic, totalitarian regime. However, the older meaning of the word which Marx is using is simply absolute authority in some sphere. Thus, the dictatorship of the proletariat represents the authority of the working class, just as our current capitalist system entails the dictatorship of the bourgeoisie. Discussing Marx's conception of the dictatorship of the proletariat would be a lot easier if there was an actual instance of such a dictatorship during Marx's own lifetime, recognized as such by Marx himself. Lucky for us, there is. In France in 1871, radical workers established a revolutionary government in Paris, which ruled for two months before it was crushed by the French National Army in a bloody massacre. The Commune was extremely influential on Marx's thought, as he considered it to be the first historical example of the dictatorship of the proletariat. The Commune is mentioned in several of the prefaces to the Communist Manifesto itself, so there's no reason why Peterson wouldn't know about it either. Looking at the Commune and Marx's writings on it, we can actually answer all of Peterson's questions. The, the problem with that, you see, is that because all the evil isn't divided so easily up into oppressor and oppressed, that when you do establish a dictator of the proletariat to the degree that you can do that, which you actually can't because it's technically impossible and an absurd thing to consider to begin with, not least because of the problem of centralization, I mean, you have to hypothesize that you can take away all the property of the capitalists, you can replace the capitalist class with a minority of pro proletariats, how they're going to be chosen isn't exactly clear in the Communist Manifesto, that none of the people who are from the proletariat class are going to be corrupted by that sudden access to power because they're, well, by definition, good. So, so then you have the good people who are running the world and you also have them centralized so that they can make decision, decisions that are insanely complicated to make, in, in fact, impossibly complicated to make. And so that's a failure conceptually on both dimensions because, first of all, all the proletariat aren't going to be good, and when you give, put people in the same position as the evil capitalists, especially if you believe that social pressure is one of the determining factors of human character, which the Marxists certainly believe, then why wouldn't you assume that the proletariat would immediately become as or more corrupt than the capitalists, which is, of course, I would say exactly. Jordan Peterson says that the dictatorship of the proletariat entails taking the workers and putting them in the position previously occupied by the evil capitalists. If this were true, then Marx's position would be pretty indefensible. If, as Marx believed, one's class to a large extent determines one's political and economic interests, then putting workers in the position of capitalists would change their political and economic interests to capitalist ones, and would lead to no structural changes at all. However, again, even in some of the prefaces to the Communist Manifesto, Marx says that the working class cannot simply lay hold of the ready-made state machinery and wield it for its own purposes, meaning that the state machinery occupied by the workers must be fundamentally different from the state machinery existing under capitalism. So how would the dictatorship of the proletariat elect workers, and how would it avoid corruption? Marx answers both of these questions in a single paragraph in his text The Civil War in France, where he talks about the Paris Commune. 
Against this transformation of the state and the organs of the state from servants of society into masters of society, an inevitable transformation in all previous states, the commune made use of two infallible means. In the first place, it filled all posts, administrative, judicial, and educational, by election on the basis of universal suffrage of all concerned, subject to the right of recall at any time by the same electors. And in the second place, all officials, high or low, were paid only the wages received by other workers. The highest salary paid by the commune to anyone was 6,000 francs. In this way, an effective barrier to place hunting and careerism was set up, even apart from the binding mandates to delegates to representative bodies which were added besides. So there you go, the two essential decisions that Marx praises in the commune. What he praises is not the commune being less democratic than a capitalist state, but more democratic, where administrative, judicial, and educational posts are filled via election by the mass of the people, and once elected, rather than continuing to occupy this position for a preset number of years, they can actually be recalled any time by another election if the people are dissatisfied with their performance. This democratic system was utilized by revolutionary councils and several socialist movements around the world. Marx's goal was not rule by a minority, but working class power, and this is why he also argued that the working class must be armed at all times. Secondly, the salaries of those performing political functions are limited to wages similar to those of the workers themselves, whereas under current states, people have extremely strong financial incentives to occupy political positions and remain in them as long as possible, a dictatorship of the proletariat limits such incentives as much as possible. Of course, one of the biggest mistakes Peterson is making is that he reads Marx's critique as a moral one. He assumes that the proletariat represents the good, while the bourgeoisie represents evil, a division the kind of which Marx has criticized in several places. Instead of moralizing, Marx analyzes what kind of behavior given class interests encourage. Both the proletariat and the bourgeoisie are merely following their class interests. The reason that it's the proletariat that is playing the revolutionary role is that, whereas the bourgeoisie economically benefit from their class position, the abolition of all class divisions is in the interests of the proletariat. The point is not to eradicate the bad people and replace them with the good people, which is about as un-Marxist as one can get, but rather to change society in a way that gets rid of class interests and incentives, and the very positions of power that so-called evil people could occupy. After all, in an orthodox Marxist view, it is the structure of society that determines what the dominant understandings of good and evil are in the first place. Hi everyone, it's me again. Hope you enjoyed the video. If you did, please follow me on Twitter and subscribe to my YouTube channel, Anarchopack. Please also support me on Patreon. I'm forever grateful to everyone who has and continues to support me on Patreon. I also wish to thank Cuck Philosophy for asking me to participate in this video. I hope you all enjoyed it. Have a nice day everyone. We are Red Plateaus. We just started our Patreon, so if you have some spare change and want to support the revolution, please consider throwing us some money for production costs. We're not earning anything at all from this, and we don't plan to either. It will go solely towards paying for things like clips and art for our videos, and maybe some equipment. To finish off, 
we'd like to thank our first few patrons. Andrea Francesco Choc, Ark Tukras, Darren Druin, Jonok Schwertfeger, and Radical Reviewer. Thank you so much. In case you'd like to learn more about the topics discussed in the video, we will leave a list of recommended readings in the description, as well as possibly videos and lectures. It goes without saying that you might also learn a lot from the channels of Anarchopack and Red Plateaus, so check them out. And I'd like to thank my patrons. Apply Quine that doesn't work on 37th Call, a pronounceable name, and of course, Computer Scare, Chinese with Socialist Characteristics, Clark Fletcher, Dancing Vulture, Dasan, E.V. Rosk, Eddie Mothouse Hopkins, Edison Hua, Elliot Rosenstock, Ethan Hastings, Ewix, Finlay, Gary Coulter, Gubgub Kolkol, Hideyoshi Lakan 99, Huang Vu, Jacob Garza, Joke Slag, Jordan Hoxie, Justin Armijo, Jurgen Lips, Capsi, Kelly Rankin, Kugelblitz, Butts, M. Lim, Malkavian Madness, Markle Pax, Matt Gold, Melissa Pomo Futanari the Sixth, Noctal, Poobs, Rachel Ann, Renard, Robert Seals, Sarah Sitkin, Sweet Injections, Tendies123, Theodor Sandler Olfson, Tibetan Jazz, Trevor Stevenson, Victor Van Aveyron, Vifi, Vox Oculi Tired of the Times, Will Hartley, Zim, as well as all of these people. I know it may seem weird that we released this video several months after the debate, but we were busy with a lot of things and my laptop broke on vacation, so we took a while to finish it. I hope you enjoyed it and found it educational either way. After this, I'm getting back into a more regular uploading schedule. And of course, I'd like to thank very much to Anarchopack and Red Plateaus for joining me on this video. It would have been way worse without them. Thank you.